Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. We are diving into a book today that has caused a lot of confusion uh, for people who follow Jesus and for people who don't. It's a book that has at times been used as a moral bludgeon to kind of beat people over the head with how they're supposed to live. It's a book that's used by new atheists to point out all the ways that Christianity and the Bible are barbaric and wrong. Does anyone know what book I'm talking about? Leviticus, that's right. And if you're a small group leader and just cheated, that's not fair. But yeah, we are looking at Leviticus this week. And I just have to say up front, Leviticus is Weird. It is a bizarre book. It is the book where everyone's Bible reading in a year plan goes to die, right? Like you start it, you're like, Genesis, yes! Oh, Exodus, that's so cool, Ten Commandments and Moses. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, I'm supposed to do what to the goat? Like kill what? It's a bizarre, bizarre, weird book. To help just give us a little bit of a grasp of how weird this book is. I've pulled a couple excerpts from it that I'd like to look at with you. And uh, here's the first one. But whatever whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water, among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you. And you may not eat of their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest." The word of the Lord, (laughs) Like, what? Leviticus really hates crab and lobster, which is unfortunate because those things are delicious. Okay, another weird verse from Leviticus. Do not wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. All right, this might get a little weird. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, and it doesn't matter if you know them or not. I'd just like you to peel back their shirt a little bit, check their tag to make sure they are not breaking the law of Leviticus before we get going today. We don't want any of that going on. All right, or what about this one? This one kind of convicted me a little bit. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. I trimmed my beard yesterday, just to be honest with you, so I'm, I'm, I'm breaking the code. And uh, it actually makes me feel like I probably shouldn't preach on this book today. So I think I might just turn it over to Larry and let him do it, um, especially in light of this next verse. Uh, a man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. So (laughs) Larry uh, is much better at following Leviticus than I am, and so I think he is probably the proper authority to talk about this book today. And it's okay, I got permission to make fun of his baldness, so you don't have to feel like, oh, what is this guy doing? All right, so we can laugh about this book. It's kind of bizarre. There's some weird things in it. And and here's the truth. When we come to Leviticus, at its best, these laws and rules and rituals feel very, very, like, bizarre and foreign to us. And that's at its best. They feel irrelevant. At its worst, we come to the book of Leviticus, and, and it gives us PTSD because the laws seem so barbaric, God seems so petty, and, and everything just looks like, man, if we don't do all of these things exactly right, lightning bolts are going to come down from the sky and smite us all. 
And so it can leave us in this place of confusion of what do we do with the book of Leviticus. And to be honest with you, I found out in December that I was going to uh, have the privilege of preaching on Leviticus. And I told Larry that moment that, okay, February, last weekend in February, hey, Larry, just so you know, I actually get sick a lot in February, and I'm pretty confident I'm going to be sick that weekend, so you're going to have to preach that book because I'm not sure I want to. I'm only half kidding. But here's the thing. Here's what happened is as I was studying this book, as I was looking at Leviticus and reading through it and and looking at commentaries and watching videos and listening to podcasts, something happened that I think often happens when we come to parts of scripture that seem bizarre, that seem weird to us, that, that, that make us feel uncomfortable. And that's this. The more I sat with Leviticus, the more I began to see the depths of its wisdom, the richness of its beauty, And that there is actually a message within Leviticus and what it is trying to say to the people of Israel that still speaks to us today. And so you may not believe me, but I'm actually really excited to preach a message on Leviticus. And I think our time today is going to be really valuable together. But before we get into Leviticus, I think it's really important to kind of get our bearings, to get an understanding of what this book is. You may have have read through the Bible and read through Leviticus a number of times. You may be coming to the Bible and and thinking, I don't even know what Leviticus is. Like, what is that book? So we have a Bible project video. It's about five and a half minutes long. I think it's really effective on, on kind of helping us catch our bearings and understanding what this book is all about. So turn your attention to the screen and check out this video. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. 
you see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules uh, about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're gonna ignore you or they're gonna turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. 
and he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. All right. It's not too scary, right? Probably, whoops, probably should have given a graphic warning about the goats getting like lasered apart. But outside of that, <laughs> fairly understandable. Um, they do a nice job of, of kind of synthesizing all the information that's going on in that book. So let's go ahead and jump in, get started. We're going to start with Leviticus 1.1, and then we're going to go verse by verse through the entire book. Okay, you with me? Just kidding, we are not doing that. <laughs> All right. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, this is very important, this first verse, because the, the first verse of Leviticus starts out with a problem. God has descended the mountain of Sinai and he has come to dwell in the tabernacle where the people of God have built as a, a place for him to rest and to dwell. But as he is communicating with the people of God, they are separate from him, and they actually cannot get into his presence. So God has come down to dwell, but the people are separated. And it tells us in Exodus that Moses wants to get into the tent, but he can't. And Leviticus opens and says that God is speaking from the tent of meeting outside of it to the people of Israel, trying to tell them about his relationship with them. Now, uh, an illustration for this is, is, I don't know about your family, but my family oftentimes tries to have conversations from different parts of the house, right? And so I might be in the bedroom with the door closed trying to talk to my wife who's out in the kitchen and we're trying to yell back and forth and have a conversation about what we need to do or what we need to get at the grocery store and it never, ever goes well, right? Conversations that happen from separate parts of the, of the house usually end up in a fight or in me looking like a, an idiot because I'm talking to someone who has left the house with the dog and the kid and to go down and let the dog go to the bathroom. And so I'm just talking to an empty room, right? We have these moments where we have this distance. And, and Leviticus is setting up this idea that there's this distance we have from God that, that's not ideal for our relationship with him and that it's a problem that needs to be fixed. And right off the bat, Leviticus speaks to our current culture because we have all at moments felt like we are distant from God. We have all at different times or seasons of our life felt like God is aloof or that, that we are trying to say something to him, but, but can he actually hear us? Maybe God is trying to speak to us, but can we actually hear him? We feel like our relationship with God is through the muffling of doors and hallways and separate rooms. But here's the other thing I think Leviticus does for us is it actually it calls us out and wakes us up to the reality that some of us don't feel like separation from God is actually that big of a deal. We don't think that separation from God is a problem. In fact, I would argue that, that some of us, we feel more anxiety and fear over our cell phones being disconnected than the thought that we might be disconnected from God. And so Leviticus speaks to us and says, no, separation from God is a problem. It is the problem. And the rest of the book of Leviticus is trying to answer that problem and come up with a solution for how the people of God can be from outside of his presence to come into his presence. And the book of Leviticus is about God making a way for people to dwell in his presence and to have intimacy with him. So that's where we're going today. But then the question becomes, well, what is that barrier? Why can't we get in to God's presence? What is keeping us apart from God? What keeps the people of God separate from God? And the first answer is this. God 
is holy. God is holy. And his holiness creates a barrier of separation between us and himself. And it's one of the themes that runs throughout the entire course of the book of Leviticus. In fact, I think it's best summarized in Leviticus 19, 1 through 2, where it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy. In fact, in Leviticus, over 65 times, God's holiness or, or holiness is mentioned. It's a theme for the entire book that we have to understand. God is holy. Now, what often happens is when we think of God's holiness, we begin to think of of moral purity, that God is, is so morally pure and so morally good, he does nothing wrong, and we are such the opposite of that that we can't coexist together. There's elements of truth to that, but that does not encapsulate the fullness of God's holiness. See, what we do is, is we kind of bring God's holiness down the abstraction ladder, and we, we have this functional view of God where his holiness is really kind of like a, a, a moral bookkeeper, right? So he's sitting up in heaven, and he's just like got this ledger of all the stuff we've done right, all the stuff we've done wrong. He's like, man, Paul had a really bad day today. That was, okay, he's, he's got that stuff going on. Or... And so we have this view of God that he's just keeping track of all of our rights and wrongs as some sort of bookkeeper from on high. I think personally, my own view of God's holiness often functions like this. I see God as a, a moral customs agent or a, a holiness customs agent. And so as I'm trying to get into God's presence, he's there to kind of block my way and make sure I'm not bringing anything into the, the, his presence or the country that's not supposed to be there. And so he kind of just sifts through my baggage of my heart and looks for all the things that I'm doing wrong or things that are wrong with me or ways that I've, I've done something bad. And he says, ah, you know what? You can't actually come into my presence until you take care of that. And I'm just, I'm going to need you to, to wait over there. We're going to have to throw some of that stuff away. Some of you might tell I've had some bad interactions with customs agents before, but that's all right. Different story. All right, so God is this holiness customs agent that keeps us from his presence, so that, that, that just looks at all the things that are wrong with us. And so we come to church and we think, oh, I can't worship today because I have all this stuff wrong with me, or I, I can't listen to the, the sermon, or I can't pray this morning because there's so many things that are wrong in my heart. The problem with that view of God is, is that it, 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 that holiness, it, it just... It's so small, and it actually just makes God kind of petty. And holiness is actually not primarily about moral purity. When Scripture and Leviticus talk about God's holiness, it is not talking about just doing right or wrong. It is actually talking about that God is the essence of life. His holiness is the essence of all life in the entire cosmos, It is that God is transcendently and infinitely other. He is separate from creation. He is the author and creator of all life. And as such, he is unique in the universe and completely separate and transcendent. That is actually what God's holiness is about. Now, I think a a better way to understand God's holiness is actually the idea of a nuclear reactor. Okay, so you have this image of a nuclear reactor in your head. And and you can imagine if you want to go into the the presence of a nuclear reactor, 
they're not just going to let you go in there and start a game of tackle football, right? <laughs> like there are going to be certain regulations, certain rules, certain rituals that you have to do in order to go on a tour of a nuclear reactor. And so the tour guide might say something to you like, hey, you need to wear this certain type of outfit to protect you against the radiation, or, or you need to not wear certain types of, of metal or material. Or, or you might have to, to walk just on the line that they have set for you and not vary off of that. You might have to, to, to be told, what, hey, don't touch this and don't touch this knob, right? Like you don't just waltz in to a nuclear reactor and think, oh, this is going to be awesome. You walk into it with the proper reverence and respect and, and an appropriate level of fear, that is the picture that Leviticus paints for us of God's holiness. And so you have all of these rituals and, and these, these priestly garbs that they're supposed to wear, kind of like hazmat suits, and, and these ways that God is saying, I am holy, and your interaction with me needs to follow these certain instructions and rituals in order to safely interact with my holiness. Because God's holiness is dangerous to us the same way that a nuclear reactor is dangerous to us. And so the idea of Leviticus is, is, is God helping people and instructing them on how to interact with this holiness that is actually very, very dangerous to them. And I think that's really important for us because, because in a lot of our context, in our cultural moment, we have a de-elevated view of God. I, I mean, we like the God that, that, that we can just be friends with. We like the God that we can go on coffee dates with. We like the God that we can Instagram about. And Leviticus calls us to this view of God that is bigger and anything beyond what we can imagine. And that we have to have a proper level of respect and awe and fear and reverence when we come in to the presence of God. That we don't just waltz in that we are separate and he is unique and transcendent and holy. And the question, though, is why does God's holiness create a barrier? If he is so good and he desires to be in relationship with us, why does, why does his holiness create a barrier? Well, if God's holiness is the essence of life and it's the purity of all life, the abundance of life, the context that we live in, the, 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 the atmosphere, the, the, the space that we take up is the opposite of that, right? Like we live in a space that is full of death and decay and disease and sin, all of which are the opposite of that holiness, of that uniqueness and that separateness and that otherness, that essence of life. And so it creates a barrier because people who, who operate in this space cannot enter the immense power of a nuclear reactor without things going terribly wrong. And so the second thing Leviticus confronts us with is this idea that not only is God holy, but also that we are sinful and that we live and breathe in space that is full of sin, full of death, full of disease, and full of decay. Sin disrupts our relationship with God and obstructs God's capacity to be intimate with us. If God's holiness is the bricks in the barrier, then our sin and our death and our decay and our disease, that is the mortar. And it creates a separation between us and God. Now, what's interesting is when, again, when we come to talk about sin and when we think about sin, we often think of sin as some sort of moral behavior, right? Something that I do 
something that, that I say that is wrong, that's sinful. Leviticus actually has a much more complicated view than that of sin. In fact, Leviticus sees sin as not just some abstraction of our actions, but actually a, a pollutant that almost has like a physical substance. So that when we sin, either knowing or unknowingly, it, it releases this sin, this pollutant into the atmosphere that contaminates everything it comes into contact with. It, it's corrosive. It, it destroys and damages life. It breaks apart societies and people and the cosmos. It has this physical presence that though we can't see it, as it expands and, and does its work, everything is affected by it. Everything is infected by it, like a virus that, that just spreads and can't be solved. But we have a problem in our culture and that we have come to a, to a time and space where, where we are very good at denying the realities of sin, we are very, very talented at inoculating ourselves to that disease. And so most people in our culture can go through seasons where they feel like, you know what, I'm actually pretty good. Like there's nothing that wrong with me. I'm definitely not as bad as the people over there, right? We, we've come to this place where it's okay to deny the sin within ourselves, to deny sin that's in others, and to deny sin that are, that's in societies and institutions. And we live in this space where sin is actually not that bad. But the problem is, in Leviticus, sin is a real problem. It has infected everything. It has caused devastation and damage and decay. And so we have to deal honestly with the fact that we are sinful. I think this is especially important for those of us in the room who would consider us, ourselves followers of God, who, who would consider ourselves people of God. Because in Leviticus, part of the point of the law and of all these rituals is that it separates the people of God from the rest of culture and from the world that they were inhabiting. And that by the way they live and follow these rules and these rituals and these laws and these ways of behaving, that they are actually seen as, as holy to the outside world. But in order to do that, they have to reconcile with the fact that they are sinful and deal with their sin. And God sets up this dichotomy that as the people of God deal with their sin and are honest with it, so the surrounding cultures will deal with their own sin. But the inverse is also true. If the people of God deny where they are sinful, and if the people of God deny where, where the, the people they support and the, the institutions they're a part of deny the reality of sin, then culture follows. One of my favorite authors and, and uh, pastors in New York, his name is John Tyson, he puts it this way. Non-Christian seekers will deal with their sins according to the way Christians first deal with their own. And so if we deny sin, they'll deny sin. If we acknowledge our sin, then it, it allows them to deal with their own. He goes on to say, when Christians filled with the Holy Spirit are convicted of their sin, non-Christians will be convicted of sin and convert to Christ. And then he summarizes this argument by saying, when Christians wake up to the realities of sin, the fact that God is holy and that we are not, revival takes place. And the church and the people of God are filled with enthusiasm for what God is doing in the world. And when that happens, non-Christians will also wake up, which is what we call evangelism. See, and I think we have to ask ourselves as the people of God, how are we doing at this? 
Because we live in a cultural moment where, where so many people in our society that, that we know and that we see in the news or on social media or in relationship with, that, that we live in this moment where people are allowed to define sin for themselves. Where people are allowed to say, you know what, that's not my truth. That may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. And my fear is that we as the people of God have actually adopted that mentality more than we realize. And so when we see sin in the world and try to call it out, they look at us and say, hypocrites, who are you to call out that sin in us? Because you have that same thing going on in your communities. You see, the challenge for us is that, that we have to be honest with the realities of our sin. If we ever have the ability to have a prophetic voice in our culture, and you can see the, the ways that that affects our culture when we can't have that prophetic voice. When we lose the, the moral ability to, to speak into our culture about the ways that they are damaging themselves and others. Because that's essentially, that's what sin is when it comes down to it. Sin is what I do to damage myself or to damage you. Sin is what you do that damages yourself and that damages others. And when we lose the ability to call out the damage that we see, because we're not willing to deal with the damage that we've inflicted, then the, the very fabric of society begins to fall apart. People are polarized. And it makes sense because none of us wants to be, none of us wants to say, man, I am so sinful. I've done this thing wrong to hurt you. I mean, we are much better at pointing out the ways other people have damaged other people or especially have damaged us. The challenge of Leviticus is to be honest with the fact that we are sinful, that we all have done things that damage ourselves and that damage other people. And it calls us to repentance of that fact, of that reality. And when the people of God don't, it leaves the world confused and in a place of chaos. So, God is holy. You and I are the furthest thing from, and that creates a barrier between us and God. But this is where Leviticus gets fascinating because God provides a way as a holy God for sinful people to be in his presence. And you see that, and we saw that in the video on, on this day of atonement that's at the center of the book of Leviticus. And here's just a, a very brief highlight of that day. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So Aaron has to offer a sin offering to make sure that he is prepared and ready to offer the sin offering for the rest of the people. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Basically, they roll a set of dice to decide which goat dies and which goat gets sent into the wilderness. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So there's two goats, and both of them are used for atonement. The first that I want to talk about is the scapegoat, right? So it's the goat that in the video they sent out of the camp. Anybody else feel a little bit sad for the goat when they send it away? Like, I don't know if I'm just empathetic, but I was like, man, poor goat. Like, get out of here, goat. That's rude. So they, they come to this goat, and they confess all of the sins of all of the people, 
and pray over the goat and confess the sins to God and place them symbolically on the goat and then send it out of the camp and this goat removes the sin of the people of Israel from the camp and from the people of God so that they can be in communion and relationship and intimacy with God. The second goat is fascinating because this, this atoning goat that is sacrificed and slain, they take the blood of this goat and they sprinkle it all over the holy of holies. They sprinkle it all over the place where God dwells. Now, why would they sprinkle blood everywhere? I mean, I don't know if you've ever dealt with blood, cleaning an animal, cleaning fish, cooking raw meat. It is not a clean substance, right? I mean, it's sticky. It's hard to get off of things. So why in the world do they go around just spraying blood all over? That's a gross image. Well, you got to remember, sin has physical properties in the, in the minds of, of the people of Leviticus. That the, these sins have physical properties. And so all year long, as the people of God sin, they release that corrosive substance, that pollutant, and it gets on everything in the camp and in the Holy of Holies. It gets into the nuclear reactor of God's holiness. And, and the blood is the substance, the detergent, that is powerful enough to, to erase and to clean the sin and, and the pollutant of all of our iniquity. And so the blood actually provides atonement for the people of God to be in relationship with him. Now what's fascinating is if you look at all of the Torah and you begin in Genesis and you go to, to uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the center of that entire story of the first five books of the Bible is the Day of Atonement. Let me show you what I mean. You can begin in Genesis where God creates all of the world and the entire universe and then people rebel against him and, and the question becomes, how do we get back into God's presence? And so God calls Abraham and Jacob and all of the descendants of Israel and they begin this process of getting back into God's presence. That, that comes through Exodus, God redeeming his people from Egypt. And then you get into Leviticus and you have these seven different chapters about the sanctuary laws and then a few chapters about priestly laws and then a few chapters about personal laws. And the height of all of that story, of that narrative, is the day of atonement where the people of God sacrifice and atone for their sins so that they can be in God's presence. And there's a shift in the narrative where the people of God live out the holiness of God on the way to the promised land in Deuteronomy where they begin to take back the land and begin to experience life with God the way it was originally intended to do. So the height of the whole first five books of the Bible focuses and centers on elevating the day of atonement as the answer to how God will make a way and provide a way for people to be in relationship with him. What's fascinating is you see in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament, the people who knew Jesus, they begin to pick up on this and place Jesus in the center of the story as the sacrificial lambs, as the goats who are, are sacrificed on the day of atonement. And you see it all over. It's in Romans. It's in the Gospels. And I just pulled out one verse to show us, but you can find this in, in many other places. This is from 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, what happens in Jesus is this atonement that God has with the people of Israel to make a way for them to be in relationship with him gets expanded just from the people of God to the entire cosmos, to all people everywhere, to the entire universe. In Christ, we have a permanent access to a holy God because his holy blood was shed to make atonement for our sins to make a way for us to be in intimate relationship with God. And so not only is the Day of Atonement a core theme of all Torah, it is central in all of Scripture because Christ is the one who made atonement for our sins. Now, here's the thing. As I was looking at at this this week, And I was studying the book of Leviticus. Because how do you preach the book of Leviticus? Usually you come to the book of Leviticus and you focus on all the laws and you focus on all the things the people of God are supposed to do. And so I had this whole sermon written about how God is holy. And because God is holy, he calls us to be holy. And so therefore, we're supposed to live holy lives in the world and be set apart. And so I was going to talk about how we're supposed to be people who are generous, or we're, we're supposed to be people who have a different sexual ethic, or, or we're people that are supposed to be concerned about social injustice. Those are all threads that you see throughout the book of Leviticus for how the people of God are supposed to be holy, the things they are supposed to do. But the more I studied Leviticus and the more I sat with it, the more I, I kept getting drawn to the second to last chapter in the book. Because it's fascinating, God, he kind of lays out all of the laws and the rituals and the priestly behaviors and the actions the people of God are supposed to do. And in chapter 26, he says, if you follow these instructions, if you follow these commandments, if you are faithful to this covenant, then I will be faithful to you. We can live in harmony with one another. We can live in intimacy if you obey. This is a part of Leviticus that then we become more familiar with because he follows that up with, if you do not, then there will be consequences. And God says several times, if you walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. If you disobey, if you are unfaithful, then there will be consequences. The land that you've been given that that will experience peace and prosperity and abundance if you're faithful will begin to reject you. And you'll experience famine and conflict, both internally and externally. And if those signs don't wake you up, then I will send another nation to conquer you and to remove you from the land and remove you from my presence. If you disobey and are disobedient. That's the part of Leviticus and and the Old Testament law that that we're really familiar with. If you obey, good things will happen. If not, watch out. So you better do these things. And that's where I was headed. And what's fascinating to me is as you read that, you realize something. That as God is talking to the people of Israel, telling them to be faithful, and that if they're not faithful, there will be consequences. He is looking ahead to the reality of the relationship he has with the Israelites. He is looking ahead to the fact that they will not be faithful. He is looking ahead and knows that they are going to reject his commands. He knows that they are going to cheat on him. He knows that they are going to worship other gods. He knows that they are going to reject the way that he has provided for them to be intimate with him. He knows that they are going to betray and blaspheme 
and reject his heart. And then he says this. Yet, yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. See, I became overwhelmed by this idea that that God is fully aware of how the people of Israel are gonna treat him and still says, I will not reject you, I will not abhor you, I will still pursue you. I will still bring you back to the land and you will be my covenant people and we will have relationship and intimacy as we were always intended to. See, and one of the reasons why I shifted a little bit is because, I don't know about you, but, but have you ever had one of those weeks where you just could not get out of your own way and causing damage and harm to everyone around you? Like, I, I, I've just, to be honest, that without going into too much detail, I've had one of those weeks where I have just felt like I have failed a hundred different ways every single day. As a father, as a pastor, as a, as a spouse, as a friend, just as a person. And I don't understand that. I don't understand that on my worst day, when I have failed and been unfaithful and spat in the very face of God, that he chooses to pursue me. That he does not reject me. That he does not hate us. That he chooses to provide a way for us to be intimate with him. No matter how jacked up we might be, no matter how messed up, no matter how controlling or chaotic or confused, no matter how broken or bitter or manipulative or angry, God, in his gracious mercy and love, provides a way. He provides a way. That is a love that I do not understand. That is a grace that that I cannot find anywhere else. And it just hit me as I came across this page that that I come to this Old Testament, I think God is petty and and, and vindictive and upset, and, and yet still we see the heart of God all the way back in Leviticus. That if, as John says, God is love, there has never been a moment in time where he has not been love, where he has not pursued us recklessly and with abandon and passion that doesn't make sense that we can't find anywhere else. And so I'll I'll maybe yell another day about all the things that we're supposed to do as the people of God to to love people who are experiencing injustice and to be generous and to have different sexual ethics. I I can yell about that at another day. But for today, I think the message of Leviticus at its core is that God is holy, that you and I are the furthest thing from, and God still makes a way that there's no boundary or limit or breaking point to his love and the links that he will go to to bring us into intimate relationship with himself. That is the truth at the heart of Leviticus. Will you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, God, I pray that uh, that this reality of, of your love, of your grace, of your mercy, that, that a holy God would choose me on my worst day, that would choose us as a community as often as we fail and misrepresent you, as, as often as we are unfaithful, the many moments we have where we turn our back and reject you and choose our own way, that you choose to forgive and pursue. God, I pray the reality of that deep truth would change and transform our lives and our experience of you that we would know confidently that we can be forgiven and enter your presence and experience communion with a holy, transcendent, infinite God. And God, I pray that that would be the motivation for however we might live in the world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.